You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. y'all. Welcome to the week after Easter Sunday. Every Sunday ought to be Easter Sunday, right? It is. We worship the risen Lord. I was saying in the first service that last Sunday was the first time in 41 years that I have been able to just attend an Easter worship service without teaching. And it was really interesting. In fact, my wife and I even came to church together in the same car. Wow. We haven't done that in 40 years of ministry because you know, our schedules were always so different and I didn't want to feel bad after having an argument with my <laughs> wife on Sunday morning and having to preach. So we've never had an argument on the way to church. Most of you can't say that, can you? True. All right. True. Now we're going to see what next year brings, but I said to Derek, I said, Derek, why don't you just take Easter by yourself? And he did a wonderful job, knocked it out of the park. So... Uh, it was quite exciting. We had to move into the gym. As you know, we planned to have the outdoor, but on Saturday they were still brought, you know, forecasting a lot of rain, which didn't happen, but that's okay. Uh, we're able to, to get it done, and it was really, it was exciting. It was. Uh, with that many people packed into that gym. I think we had like 700 chairs that were set up, and I think every one of them was full, and there were people standing along the wall. So it was really, really meaningful. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 because now we're continuing this morning the study that we've been doing on the book of Nehemiah. We've titled this Under the Influence because Nehemiah was a man of influence. And so we're looking at how does a man of influence, how does an influencer, how do any of us, because we are all influencers in some area, how do we address the certain issues that Nehemiah had to address? Now this morning when we come to chapter 5, the topic of the message this morning is about betrayal. Mm. And I know you're thinking, oh man, what a downer, man. I really need something to lift me up. And I pray that this message actually will. But one of the benefits of doing what we like to do, which is to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, is that you don't get to skip over the hard stuff. You have to deal with the hard stuff. Topical teaching, you can kind of pick out those, cherry pick those passages, you know, that are fun. And then sometimes you come to a passage like this where the hard topics are addressed. And if you're going to be true to the full counsel of God's word, then you have to deal with them. And that's where we are this morning in the first 13 verses of Nehemiah chapter 5, where Nehemiah has to address this issue of betrayal. Now, before we get into the text, let me just say a few things about betrayal so you understand what we're talking about here. First of all, only those who are within your trust sphere can actually betray you. Only someone that you have a relationship with, someone who is in that some kind of trust relationship is somebody that can actually betray you. Now, People can do mean things to you from the outside and all that kind of stuff, and and that's bad, and it can be devastating, but it's not a betrayal. Betrayal can only be done by someone with whom you have a trust relationship, and because of that, betrayal is the height of human agony. When someone that you had trusted does something like that, not only that, but betrayal 
can happen in virtually every area of life. It can happen in business, and maybe some of you have had that experience where you were in business with someone, and they actually betrayed you, and, and that, was, that was very difficult. It can be sometimes someone who's working within a company or a corporation or whatever, or even with the go- within the government, and they give away those secrets that are, that are proprietary to the particular business. That's a betrayal because that's a person on the inside that has been given a trust relationship that's doing that. It can also happen nationally. Um, a nation can be betrayed. And, you know, all nations have enemies uh, that do terrible things like Russia invading Ukraine, and that's a horrible thing, and it's an invasion, and, but it's not a betrayal because they were not in a trust relationship. It's a horrible thing, but it's not a betrayal. But a, a, a national betrayal is when someone from the inside does something that is devastating to that nation. In our Constitution, we call it treason. In fact, it has been spelled out in the Constitution of the United States about treason. Benedict Arnold, in 1780, attempted to sell, to surrender West Point to the British Army. West Point at the time wasn't just a school. It was actually a very fortified place, and it was very important to uh, the survival of the colonies. And what Benedict Arnold attempted to do for 20,000 pounds, which was a boatload of money back then, uh, was to surrender that to the British. And it was treason, and he was put to death for it. Uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Perhaps if you were not uh, old enough to remember that, which I'm not, it was happened in 1953, which is one year before my birth. And so at one year old, I wasn't reading about, you know, treason. But on July the 7th, 1953, Julius and Ethel Rogenberg were actually put to death for the crime of treason because what they did was they delivered atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. And one of the reasons that the Soviet Union became a nuclear power with nuclear warheads as soon as they did is because of Julius and, and, and Ethel uh, Rosenberg who delivered them secrets. And that was a tremendous betrayal, a national betrayal. It was called treason, and they were put to death for it. Mm. You see, our founders knew that the greatest attack would be from the inside. And so it's interesting that they put in the Constitution. In fact, treason is the only crime that is specifically mentioned in the Constitution of the United States, and it is the only crime that is mentioned, and the penalty is spelled out in the Constitution, which is to forfeit one's life when you are treasonous to the United States of America, when you fit the qualifications of what treason really is. And so there's national betrayal. Third, they're relational betrayals, a trusted friend, uh, a spouse in marriage, uh, in, uh, in these kinds of intense relationships in life. When, when one uh, violates the trust of the relationship, then that is a betrayal and that is devastating. And it can happen also in ministry. There is no attack that is more effective against the work of the kingdom of God and against the gospel than an attack that comes from the inside. Mm. We expect attacks from the outside. The world does not lo- love Jesus, doesn't know Jesus, and wants us to shut our mouths, and that's, that's fine. That's no problem. But when something happens from the inside, that's when it is most effective and when it is most devastating. Mm. I, for 40 years of being a pastor, uh, I've faced a lot of attacks from the outside, and you expect them to come. I mean, they're just not shocking, and you don't really feel emotionally hurt by it because you just expect it to happen. But the greatest betrayals in 40 years as a pastor is when the attack came from the inside, someone who was in a trust relationship and did something that was actually harmful to the work of the kingdom. 
And so that's what betrayal is. It's not somebody just does something mean to you. It's someone who, though, that betrays this trust relationship that is devastating. And in chapter 5, that's what we're going to see that's going to happen. And it's interesting that in chapter 5, we see that the work on the wall actually comes to a stop for a period of time while they're addressing this issue. Before, you know, they were building the wall around the city, rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem that had been down for about 150 years. There had been physical attacks from the outside, outsiders that tried to stop the work. They were not able to do it. But this issue, when there was a betrayal from the inside, it was able to do what no attack from the outside had been able to do. And so what we're going to see is how this betrayal worked itself out, what it looked like, and then how ultimately the influencer, Nehemiah, addressed it and handled it. We start with the symptom, the symptom uh, of the problem, and we get our first clues of this internal betrayal and symptoms of this issue in verse 1. It says, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. That's, That's an important when you know detail. it's bad, when you the know wives speak up. You know it's real <laughs> when, when the wives get involved. Against their Jewish brothers. That's a super key part of this. That's Against right. their Jewish brothers. This reveals a symptom of a deeper issue. The issue is not an outside threat like Sanballat and Tobiah. It's not an outside governing body. It's within the own, their own community, within the Jewish community. It says the Jewish brothers. Verse 2, it goes on to says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. In other words, they had big families, which means they needed a lot of food, and they didn't have a lot of food, and so they were starving as a result. Verse 3, it says, There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. They were, they were in a bad spot financially, economically. They had to mortgage what they owned just in order to eat. And by the way, let me just pause here for a minute and, and just suggest to you that whatever problem you face in your life, big or small, doesn't matter, can we agree as the people of God... <laughs> That these problems become monumentally worse when you're hungry. That's when you get hangry. Yeah, you get hangry. <laughs> there are some ungodly things in God's people that take place. People when get we desperate. Get hungry, when yes, hungry. absolutely. And, and I, you know, I say it in jest, but it really is true. This makes this a very heated food survival. I mean, these are like fundamental parts of our, of our life. And when that thing is jeopardized or taken away, uh, we become hostile very, very quickly. Verse 4, we see more of the problem. It says, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyard. So now we're starting to see the issue. There was also this tax going on that was being implemented on them. And so you have uh, small business owners, by the way. Can we say amen to that? Tax problems? Mm -hmm. Is that just okay? Um, it's here, always been the same thing. Always. Taxes, taxes. Here's what's happening. Because there's a famine... People didn't have the crops to support themselves and their families. They had to mortgage their properties in order to buy grain from other people. But because of the taxes they were also having to pay that were being exacted upon them, they were starting to have to sell their kids off as indentured servants just to pay for all of this. So their families are going into indentured servitude. And all of that is happening at the hands of their Jewish brothers. Mm. This is within the community. Understand, these are not lazy people. 
They were hardworking individuals, but they faced a famine, their crops weren't producing, they had to mortgage their belongings in order to eat, and as a result, couldn't pay their taxes, and so their families became enslaved to other people within their community. And, and understand that, as I said a moment ago, this is a foundational need for humanity's survival to eat. And so because of this famine and the crop situation, the people became vulnerable and there were those within the community who took advantage of that vulnerability. And as verse 1 says, I just read it, I'll read it again, there was a great outcry. Things were not well in the city. There was something rotten in Denmark. <laughs> Shakespeare? No? Okay. So now, go back to the, the issue of betrayal here for a moment. Where's Robbie? Is Robbie in here? I know you know. I know you know. He's a Shakespeare guy. Two of those that James mentioned here a moment ago are present in this story. There is relational betrayal and ministerial betrayal. Relational betrayal in that these were Jews who were impacting negatively other Jews. Right, But there was a ministry betrayal and that these were all people working on the wall together. And this is all happening in the background. And it was agonizing, not only for them, but for Nehemiah, the leader, right. watching it all unfold. And so, get this though, these are symptoms of a problem. There's something deeper going on here. In order to understand it, we really need to understand the source of the problem. Yeah, let's, uh, let's kind of come back and, and, and unpack this just a little bit more about really at the heart of this issue. If you read verse 1, as Derek did, you get to the heart of the problem that this was not foreigners that was doing this to the Jews. This was Jew that was taking advantage of brother and sister Jew. It was Jews betraying Jews, and they did it so that the, they might ingratiate themselves or that they might uh, aggrandize themselves, that they might line their own pockets so they can make an extra buck. Now, here's the scheme, okay? There were Jewish brothers who were the elite of the Jewish community, who were the upper echelon, who were the more wealthy ones, who were charging, who were making loans to their poorer Jewish brothers, and they were charging extremely high interest rates, okay? And they had to take these loans out for those two reasons that Derek mentioned. First of all, there was a famine, and so they needed to buy any grain they could. But also, the king of Persia was requiring that they pay taxes, and he didn't care about the famine. He didn't care about what was going on. He wanted you to pay your tax. And so, in order to survive and in order to pay the king's taxes so that the king did not come in and punish them, they were taking out loans. And the more wealthy of the Jews in their midst were more than willing to give them a loan, but they would take their land as collateral in the case they, the loan defaulted, and they would charge high interest, 20 to 30 percent. That is called usury, okay? And then when the poor family could not pay the loan, then they had two options, okay? When their crops failed and, and, and when they couldn't pay, the, pay the, the, the interest on the loan, then they had two options, they could give their children to the, the debtor to work off the loan, or they could sell their children into indentured servitude to another, and when that one paid, then they would use that money to pay off the loan. Either way, their children were being sold out into basically a form of slavery, which was quite common in the ancient world, where you worked off a loan by working for nothing, and they credited your account, or they would come in and they would just flat take the land. They would, one Jewish brother would just take the farm and take the land of their poor Jewish brother. And in that day, in that agrarian culture, if you didn't have your land, you were destitute. 
because your land was your wealth. It was where you grew crops to feed your family. It was where you grew the crops in order to be able to sell for other necessities. And so once that land was taken away from you, you had absolutely nothing. You couldn't just go down to Discount Tire and get a job changing tires. I mean, your land was your life. So this is going on, and verse 6 tells us that Nehemiah finally got wind of this because Nehemiah has been leading the people to rebuild the wall, and this is God's work on the wall around Jerusalem, and and he hadn't really been paying all that much attention, but all of a sudden word comes to him in verse 6, and he says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. In other words, when they started outcrying, this is a horrible thing that's happening. Nehemiah says when he heard that, he became angry. Mm. Nehemiah got fired up. He was hacked off. He was chapped to the limit. You think of any term you can think of, and this was what was boiling up inside of Nehemiah, this influencer man of God. Now get this, folks. The Bible doesn't say that anger is sin. That's a, that's a misnomer. That is not what the Scripture says. It says that anger becomes sinful when it leads us to do sinful things. But the Emotion of anger itself is a very God-given emotion. You know, and there are times that we should be. With your outfit, you missed some great moments. A burr under his saddle. Oh, a I snake know. in his boot. <laughs> a, a hitch in his giddy-up. <laughs> you could have just thrown him out there. A hitch in his giddy-up. I don't know if that replies to anger. Yeah. You're really stretching it there, millennial. I think it could have worked, though. But... But, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, burned or settled. This is not nice. This is not good. You're exactly right. And so keeping it in character, okay, we'll go with that. Whatever works, whatever floats your boat, you come up with that image, and that will give you an idea of what Nehemiah was feeling. And so the Bible never says that anger is wrong. It is when we apply our anger in a selfish way for sinful motives, for selfish motives. But so when I think of this, and I think of how Jesus responded to the money changers of the temple, and I think of how sometimes the Apostle Paul responded in situations, I think it would be pretty good if God's people had more of a capacity to get angry sometimes. Mm. But to get angry at the right things. There are some things that you and I as Christ followers should be able to get a burr under our saddle about. Okay, to get chapped about. Because when you can express that kind of anger, that's a very passionate response. And I believe that a person without passion amounts to a person without purpose. And without principle. Because if there's nothing that just lights your fuse, then that means there's nothing that's really all that important to you. If there's nothing that can just rile you up, that means there's not principle that is so important to you that when you see principle being violated, it will result in your temperature going up. And Nehemiah admits that when he saw these things, when he saw these betrayals that were going on, Jew against Jew, he got angry. And I want to, for a minute, walk you through the three things that he saw that were actually betrayals, and that's why he got fired up. First of all, he saw a betrayal of God's precepts. And what I mean by precept, a precept is something that has been delivered by God in his word. So he saw them betraying a truth of God's word. Verse 7 says that when he heard this, that Nehemiah consulted with himself. And I, I like that. He said he stopped, and he, and he talked to He had a consultation. He had a, a self-meeting 
as it were. And I can imagine it went something like this. Self, is this something worth getting upset about? Is this something worth causing a ruckus about? Is this something worth stirring up a storm about? Is this something worth fighting about? And he obviously concluded that it was. So the next step, after he had consulted with himself and came to an agreement, then verse 7, it says, Then I went and I contended with the nobles and the rulers. And I can imagine what that meeting would have been like. You know, you're wrong. He got in their living room. He got all up in their business is what he did. And he said, what you are doing to your Jewish brothers is wrong. Now, it says you are exacting, now get this, you are exacting usury each one from his brother. See, the problem wasn't that they were loaning. The problem was that they were doing it in a usurious way. And then it says, therefore, I held a great assembly against them. So he goes to them, first of all, and he says, what you are doing is wrong. You're charging usury. And when that didn't get to him, then he called a town meeting. He called a church meeting, and he said, we're going to deal with this out in public. And I love the fact that he did that. Now, Jesus talked about us when there's a conflict like this. When some brother's caught in sin, you go first to them alone. And then you bring another witness, and then, then you take it before the whole church. If they're not willing to repent, you just bring it out in a public assembly. And that's kind of what Nehemiah did. He went to them. They didn't respond to that. So, okay, here we go. We're going to take it to the whole community, and I'm going to call you out. And the text indicates to us that the issue initially that he pointed to them was the fact, not that they were loaning, but the fact that they were charging usury, and it was so high, the interest, 20, 30, 40%, we don't know what it was, but it was so high that it was going to put the landowner in a place where he would never be able to pay that loan off, and then that richer person would be able to take the land away from him. So you see, what Nehemiah was upset about, what they were doing was a violation of God's word, and that fired him up. Yeah. Because quite frankly, as Derek kind of piped in and mentioned in the first service, the reason that God had allowed the Babylonians 150 years before to come in and sack Jerusalem was because they were violating God's word, right? They were chasing after idols and all that kind of stuff. And there had been this kind of beginning of revival of God's people coming back to the word. Ezra, 13 years before, had, re had reinstituted the reading of God's word. So God's people were getting back in touch with God's word. And now they're the final phase of the restoration of Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall. And you've got these people, Jews, not foreigners, who are once again violating God's word. Mm. Because God has specifically told his people. You will not charge usury of one another. He said it in Exodus 22, verse 25. He said it in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19 and 20. He gave specific prohibition against charging exorbitant interest. And so Nehemiah, he's fired up. And you know, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, you know how good it would be if there were more of God's people that were willing to get fired up when they saw God's word being ignored? And I'm not talking about non-believers out there. They're going to ignore God's word. I mean within our brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think there's this attitude, there's this, there's this mindset in us that so often we're more concerned with being nice people than we are of being people of the word and standing for the word. I don't remember a scripture of Jesus saying, go therefore and be nice people. He said, go therefore and be loving people, 
But sometimes being loving is not being nice. Jesus wasn't being nice when he turned the money changers' tables over in the temple. He was being loving because they were violating the place of worship, and he was expressing his love for the worship of the Father. And so, but that wasn't a nice thing to do. But I think that sometimes we're more concerned with being nice and looking good and being nice people that nothing, we don't, we see God's word being violated and with a brother or sister, and it just doesn't fire us up. And let's be honest, you're not that nice. Yes, you're not. People, we're just, we're just not that nice. We're just not that nice. We're just not. So quit trying to be. Be loving. But being nice sometimes will cause you actually to violate a precept of God's word. When there's something that is worth getting fired up about and you don't get fired up about it, that means you don't stand on principle. And here's the next thing. It just kind of rolls down here, hill here. That betrayal of that precept ultimately resulted in a betrayal of brother against brother. Because as Derek said in verse 8, he says, we according, now get this, we according to our ability, this is when he's talking to these people that are doing this, we according to our people, our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Now, now get what he's saying here. 150 years before, the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem and carried God's people off into bondage. But there was a revival of the Jewish people coming back to Jerusalem and being restored and being free in their own city. And Nehemiah was kind of the crowning part of that with leading them to build that wall of protection around the city. And he said, so we have redeemed our brothers only to have you enslave brother again. And it's not the Babylonians doing it this time. It's not the Persians that are doing it. It is Jewish brother enslaving Jewish brother. You see, when you violate, get this, when you violate a precept of God's word, when you betray God's word, you will always betray people next. Yep. It will lead to a betrayal of people. You see, God's instructions against usury <clears throat> was to keep person from betraying person to keep brother from betraying brother. He said, don't do that with one another. That's going to cause all kinds of conflict, and it's going to create chaos within the community of faith. So don't do it, because it was always going to be a betrayal of one another. So Nehemiah, when he hears this, he's going to, he's going to confront it. He says, look, we're redeeming God's people out of bondage that they've been in 150 years. We get here to Jerusalem, and now we got Jewish brother enslaving Jewish brother all over again. You know, it's interesting to me how often in Scripture when the prophets were sent to speak a word of judgment, judgment. of a call to repentance. Which, just to be clear, is about 99% of their job. Yeah, that's, what the, that's why they, yeah. they killed the prophets because... They would always go to people that were wrong, and the prophet would say, thus says the Lord, you better get it right, and they didn't want to get it right, so they'd kill the prophets. But the people that God sent the prophets to was not the people, it was the leaders. It was the shepherds. Because, you see, it was the shepherds' job to lead the people to follow the Lord, and when the shepherds didn't do that, then the people wandered away. And so the message of the, 
the prophets in the Old Testament was always to the shepherds, the scribes, the priests, the kings, the people that were responsible for the direction of the people. In fact, Ezekiel, he, he, was, he was the worst of all. I mean, Ezekiel really got down to it. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord, Woe, you shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should you not, as shepherds, feed the flock? You see, what they were doing is they were just doing the same thing that these nobles were doing in Jerusalem. They were using their position to take advantage of the people. Those who were supposed to prepare for the people were to provide for the people and were to lead for the people were not doing it. They were lining their own pockets, and they were therefore abusing the people. And so in verse 10 of Ezekiel 34, God says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm against the shepherds. Mm. He wasn't against the people. He was against the shepherds because it was the shepherds who had been appointed to guide the people. And when the shepherds did not do what the shepherds were supposed to do, then the flock was scattered and the people went in all kinds of directions. So God sent prophets to the shepherds. And when Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees such, such scathing words as you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, the reason he did it is because their calling was to shepherd the people. But they didn't. They took advantage of the people. And they laid upon the people these huge burdens that the people couldn't carry. And they, they saw themselves as being better than. And Jesus didn't have any nice things to say about the shepherds who abused their position. And one of the things that has come to me at this late date in my life, at the age of 68, is I've realized how rampant this kind of stuff is of shepherds and pastors in local churches. Now, we hear a lot of bad stuff that are, you know, big churches and stuff, but one of the things that, that I have gotten and become aware of over the last couple of years is as the Fearless Series for Women has, has been released, and, and some churches are trying to do this and, and all that kind of stuff, everybody in the world has my cell phone number, so I literally, literally, every single week, Sometimes it'll come from Europe. I got one from Canada last week. It'll come from all 50 states in the United States, all over. I get calls from women and men almost on a daily basis saying, Pastor James, I need help. I have this struggle. Women will talk about since the Fearless Series has been out. I was sexually abused. I know women in my church that are sexually abused. And, but our pastor has no interest hmm. in implementing the Fearless Series or anything like that. Men will call me and they'll say, Pastor, I'm struggling with pornography, as they say about 70% of men are, and the other 30% are just dead dog liars. Okay? Someone said that. I don't know that's true. There are men that are not doing pornography. But about 70% of men admit that they're struggling with pornography at different kinds of levels. And so men all over the country are involved in in pure desire groups and that kind of thing to try to walk in purity and walk in victory over this issue of pornography. And when they go to their pastor to talk about it, their pastor will not let them meet in the church. They don't want anything to do with it, so they have to meet in the community center. And I say to that pastor, this is what the call that God has given me at this time of my life. It's not something I asked for. It's not something I wanted. It's not something I sought. I am calling pastors to repentance. And I'm doing it unapologetically. And you know what? The opposition I'm getting is not from the people in churches because they want help. The opposition I'm getting is from pastors that don't want to do it. Mm. For whatever reason, they're afraid of it. Mm -hmm. it's, they don't understand it. Whatever reason, 
They are standing in the way of it. And at this particular time, as God has given me the national platform, I am simply going out there saying, shepherds of the people of God, you need to repent. For you are failing. <laughs> to bind up the wounds of the sheep. And so Nehemiah is going after He's going after these shepherds because, see, there's a betrayal of precepts. There's a betrayal of people. And thirdly, there's this calling, this, this whole betrayal of perception. In verse 9, this is what Nehemiah says to them. The thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations? Nehemiah is saying, you're violating God's word. You're violating your brothers in the faith. And what that is doing is causing us as a nation to be a reproach before the nations. Mm. Remember, when God called Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew nation, what did he say? He said, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Ultimately, the Savior was to come from the Jewish people. But he also intended for the, the Jewish people to be a nation that the world, the unbelieving nations would look at and, and see them and they would be a picture of the one true God and they would be drawn to faith in the one true God. And he's saying, no, instead of you being a picture of faith to the world, you have become a reproach to the nations around us. And the nations are laughing, as it were. Look at them. They claim to be the people of the one true God. And look what they're doing to each other. Jesus said it this way in John 13. He says, they will know that you are my disciples. How? By the love you have for one another. By not doing this kind of thing. So here we are. Okay, let's wrap it up here. Let Derek bring us into... Uh, on a landing here. There was betrayal of God's precepts. They were charging usury in direct violation of his word, which then was a betrayal of the people, of their brothers and sisters in Christ, which ultimately resulted in a betrayal of the perception that the nations had about who their God was because of how they were acting. Mm. So we need a solution, the solution to betrayal, and we find that here in the text. It says that Nehemiah gathered the rulers and the nobles, and in other words, all the powerful people in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's solution is found in verse 7. And he says, and I held a great assembly against them. In other words, he dealt with the problem head on. He wasn't passive. He didn't ignore what was happening. He didn't hope it would go away. He didn't hope that it would just kind of stop happening. He confronted it. He treated it like a problem, and he addressed the problem. Now, here's the deal. Whenever there is sin in the community, it threatens everything. That's right. It, it threatens everything. It's not only damaging to the work of God, it's damaging to the people of God. And so Nehemiah calls them to task. And this is a good place to remind you, I think, that, that the kingdom of God is a better place, the local church is a better place when this approach is taken. Whenever sin becomes uncovered or present in the community, it is always best to deal with it. To just confront it head on, not to judge the person or condemn them or shun them or whatever other weird thing churches have done through the years, but deal with the sin so that it doesn't destroy the people of God and the work that those people are engaged in. I think one of the most interesting aspects of this <clears throat> is the idea that the people that Nehemiah is challenging are people of power. Mm -hmm. These are people that Nehemiah really needed in his corner in order to get the wall rebuilt. These are, 
governing officials, city officials, rulers, nobles, powerful people, people that he really needed in his, in his, on his side to, to get the work done. So there was a big risk in confronting these people because if he made them mad, they could make his job a whole lot harder. But there's a truth here, and I want you to get this. This is a very important truth. The issue of sin should always take precedence over the issue of productivity. This is a very, very important truth to live by. The issue of sin should always take precedence over the issue of productivity. Here's what I mean by that. There are times in ministry, and this is true in the workplace as well, where a job is moving along or a ministry initiative is moving along and it's firing on all cylinders and people are excited. Yes, we're getting the job done. We're growing. We're expanding. People are, are pumped. And then sin is uncovered by someone who is leading the charge and in an effort to prevent the work from stopping, we just ignore it in the name of productivity. That'll ruin our reputation if that gets out, so right. let's hide it. Yeah, if we call him or her out, it's going to ruin the whole project. The train is going to come to a halt. And we don't want that because productivity is our highest mm-hmm. factor, right? And so we're going to protect it at all costs, and so we just sweep this sin under the rug. You saw it happen a few years ago with uh, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill, Bill Hybels and Willow Creek, uh, most notably recently with Brian Houston and Hillsong. These are big larger-than-life individuals, very charismatic, very powerful, uh, leading the charge, great at vision casting, great at at inspiring people to do great things, and that train got going, and then sin got uncovered, and what happened? People went, well, but hold on. If if we call him out, then the train stops, and we don't want that to happen. And it's going to smirch the brand. Right, yeah, and so we just need to deal with it kind of off to the side, right, And and then we'll just sort of move on. The issue of sin always has to take precedence over the issue of productivity. Every time. So there are times in the local body of believers where sin has to be confronted even if it causes a mess. Yeah. Because if it's not confronted, it's going to cause a bigger mess A bigger mess down the line. Yeah. And way more harm is done than the good that comes out of not. Now, there's another aspect I think this is really uh, important as well, and that is the, the qualification that Nehemiah has to even make this kind of confrontation. He could have been doing the same things all along as all these other people. He could have been lining his pockets. He could have been loaning and charging, you know, exorbitant interest and making a little bit of a profit on the side. But verse 10 says that he had actually loaned some of the people money and grain, but he did not require interest in the payback. His attitude was sort of like, just pay me back when you can. In other words, he could confront these people without being called a hypocrite. He had a clear conscience. He was able to just go in and speak truth. And so he confronts these people, and there are four things that happen as a result of this confrontation. Here's the first one. First one is repentance. Verse 8, it says, they were silent, and they could not find a word to say. Have you ever been called out so hard for something you were doing wrong, you couldn't even respond? Just knock the words out of your mouth? Dude, you got me. Yeah. I got nothing to say about that. Got nothing. There was a few weeks ago, I was taking my kids to school one morning, and uh, we were heading down Meadowbrook almost to 820. We were at a red light there at 820, and uh, by that, that gas station, the Shell gas station with McDonald's, and there was this woman outside. I've seen her out there a number of times before, uh, holding up a sign, asking for money. And... Um, she had the uh, physical attributes that make me think probably some substance abuse is going on. I'm not saying that judgmentally. It just I, I've known a lot of people with the same physical attributes, and, and so that's what it kind of looked like. And, and uh, it was particularly cold that morning. It was kind of one of those mornings when a cold front had blown in. And, and one of my daughters said, I bet she's cold. And I was like, yeah, I bet she is, you know. 
And um, my other daughter said, Dad, can we pull over and give her some money? And I was like, sweetheart, I don't, I don't have any cash on me this morning. You know, I, I don't think that's a good idea. And the, the light had turned green. All he port. had was a $100 bill. No, yeah, I did not have a $100 <laughs> bill. It's just true. I didn't have any cash. And so the light turns green, and, and we kind of started to pull off. And, and Cam, Camelia, she said, well, but Dad, I have a dollar. Can you pull over, and, and we can at least give her a dollar? And I said, sweetheart, I said, it's complicated, but, and, and you just don't understand, but it, that's, not a, that's not a good idea. And without missing a beat, she goes, Dad, it's not complicated. You just don't want to help her. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> and here's what I said. I said this. I said, I got no words. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing is coming to me. <laughs> Nothing at all. Listen, my heart was wrong. Now, there's definitely wisdom needed in helping people. There's a lot of ministries yeah. that are engaged with helping the homeless, and, and, and you know, there's things you do and that you're not supposed to do, and, and so there's a lot of that. But the fact is, is regardless of any of that, I didn't want to help her in that moment, and I was wrong, and my daughter called my butt out on it, and I didn't have a single answer to give. I had nothing. I needed to repent. Let me say this as clearly as I can. If repentance is not the singular goal of confronting someone in their sin, you should not confront them. That's right. If you're going to confront someone and your goal is not to lead that person to repentance, you do not need to be the person to confront that person in their sin. Someone else needs to do it for you. It's not meant for you just to get something off your chest. No. If you go into that confrontation thinking, I'm going to bring that person down, <laughs> then you need to stop because and you, you are need not to repent. And you need to repent, yeah. <laughs> Because it's not helpful, and you'll only end up doing actually more damage in the long run and, and provoking that person further away from repentance, not towards it. Nehemiah understood repentance was the goal, and it was needed in order for the second thing to happen, which it did. In verse 11, we see that not only repentance, but restitution took place. Verse 11, it says, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, make it right. Don't just say that you're going to repent, but let your change in mind change your actions and make it right. If you are a practitioner of the 12 steps, this is the ninth step. You may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. It is to, the word repent in the New Testament, it means to change the mind. And, and so it follows then that if your mind is different, it will alter your actions. Your actions change as a result of the way you think. This is just psychology 101, right? It's how we are wired up. But that's not the only thing that happened. Number three, responsibility took place, verses 12 and 13. He says, and I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I, I love this. Nehemiah is such a drama queen. He says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who do not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. This was important enough that it required yeah. a picture. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And they said amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. And the wives were no longer upset no because longer they upset. got their grain back, they yes. got their land back. House is back in order. Now, there is a fourth thing that takes place here that is important, and it doesn't, it's not explicit in the text, but it is implied, and it's observable in the rest of the story. And that is, number four, there was restoration. Hmm. This is the end goal. 
This is the end goal of calling someone to repentance, is that ultimately they would be restored. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose of why we do this. They had a change in mind. They were called out for their sin. They made things right. Their actions followed that change of mind. They took responsibility. They took action to ensure that it wouldn't happen again. The priests came, and they, uh, they basically said to them, look, you are going to vow this day to make sure that this never happens again. And, and so they're making restitution and responsibility. They're, they're having accountability now. They've publicly confronted this issue. And when all of that takes place, there can be restoration. They can be restored back into the community. Trust can begin to be rebuilt. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it takes a long time, depending on the level of betrayal that has taken place. But listen, restoration can never happen if repentance, restitution, and responsibility don't happen. Amen. Those are necessary steps to begin that process. And so ultimately, that's what we see happen, is that they repent, they restore what's, what's needed, they take responsibility, and they get back on the wall and they begin working. Yeah, that, that's a cool part of it to me, is that Nehemiah saw this as important enough to put off the work on the wall until this was dealt until with. Until that was dealt with. Absolutely. And he didn't just say, well, y'all just keep working, let's get this done, then we'll deal with it. He said, no, this is, we're going to stop. We're stop. And we're going to deal with the sin, and then the work is going to continue. And we're going to continue moving. And, and listen, it... This is so applicable to you today. This is a blueprint for you right now, today. This still applies. God's truth is still as applicable to us right now as it was then. You may have sin in your life that you have not been found out in, and you need to confess it because confessing is better than being found out, okay? <laughs> you need to confess that sin. You need to repent of it. You need to change your mind of it. You need to allow that change of mind to redirect your actions, make things right to those you may have harmed or to the work that you may have halted. You need to take responsibility publicly, and, and not like in front of everyone, but to the people who it matters to, to say, hey, I'm taking steps to ensure this doesn't happen again, and then be restored to the work that God has called you Amen. to do. And it may be that it's not you who is in sin, but maybe you know someone who is, and you've kind of ignored it. You've kind of swept it under the rug and just said, ah, you know, it's not important enough right now. We've got to keep moving forward. You need to halt it and call that person to repentance. If you are capable of doing so with the end goal of repentance and restoration in mind, Amen. and then follow that blueprint, God's household, the church, the local church is always the best when we follow this. Understand, the New Testament's assumption is not that the church is not going to be without problems. Just read the New Testament. You find out pretty quickly that's not the case. Half, if not more than half, of what the Apostle Paul writes to the different local churches is rebuking them for problems, rebuking them for their sin. So it's, it's not that we are going to live as a community of faith at City on a Hill without sin and without betrayal in our own ranks. It's how we deal with it. It's how we walk through it. Are you confessing that sin? When you get called out on it, are you repenting? When you call someone out, are you seeking their restoration or their destruction? These are the important questions that we have to ask ourselves. And if we'll follow the biblical model, then you pull people out of sinful patterns by the grace of God and see them ultimately restored to something that they themselves probably believed they weren't capable of being restored back to because of shame and all the other things that go on. Will you follow this model? If we will, God will work through us in ways that, again, 
you cannot imagine. But the work stops when we don't deal with it. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for such a practical look at how Nehemiah handled this very real problem that still happens today. That sense of betrayal within our own ranks, within our own relationships, within our own ministry is absolutely something that still takes place. And how we handle it is of the utmost importance to the strength and the health of the body here at City on a Hill. I pray, God, that you would give conviction where needed, that your Holy Spirit would make the applications uh, for this text in, in each of our hearts. You know us. You created us. You know how to speak to us in a way that no one else does. And so I pray, God, that you would impress upon us the need to act accordingly. How we love you and we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And that phone ringing. Yep. Answer your phone. God bless you. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. Yeah, no, no. Hey, I, I want to say, uh, if, if you weren't here at the welcome and you're a guest or you've been here not that long, Newcomer's Lunch, happening right now, A105. We'd love to have you. God bless you. See you. <laughs>